Welcome everybody to the Music Teacher Survival Guide by Musico. I'm Dr. Nick Parnell. To kick us off for the year, we have a fantastic episode with award-winning string player Martin Butler on how to build an award-winning string program in your school. It's a fantastic listen, but before we get to that, we have some very exciting news about Musico. Musico is the company which I founded a while back in order to produce this podcast. We are now launching a brand new musical instrument hire service for schools and students. Whether you're running a band program in your school or have students who are having instrumental lessons, this is the perfect service for you. We have a fantastic fleet of new instruments, including brass, woodwind and percussion. Each of the instruments are chosen by a network of leading expert tutors, so you can be assured you're getting the perfect instrument. In order to celebrate the launch of our instrument hire program, we've got some fantastic deals on offer. So please head over to musico.com M-U-S-I-K-K-O dot com and please get in touch to find out more. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. And now to the podcast. I'm talking with Martin Butler all about how to create an award-winning string ensemble. Martin was born in London and began learning the violin at the age of eight. When he was 11, he received a scholarship to the Guildhall School of Music. Martin has gone on to work in the UK, Portugal, and played with the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra since he arrived in Australia in 1990. He has broad musical interests, performing in the Desperados, a trio formed with other ASO players, which performs arrangements of classic rock, jazz, and gypsy music. He has even worked as a keyboard player in a rock band for a time. Martin is very involved in youth music in Adelaide as an educator, conductor and arranger. He is currently the director of the Adelaide Youth Strings, which he started in 2001. Martin is also the head of strings at Concordia College and was awarded a OAM for services to music education in 2018. Welcome, Martin. How are you going? Oh, good. Thanks. Yeah. Great to be here. You grew up in the UK and uh, you spent a lot of time on that side of the world, uh, performing, and you did your studies there and so forth. So how did you end up in in Adelaide in 1990? Well, it's a long story, but uh, first of all, when I, when I went to a university, I chose to go to university to do music instead of um, music performance. So the choice in the UK at that time was that you went to one of the London music colleges if you wanted to do music performance or if you were more academically inclined you would go to university and I went to university and did composition and orchestration and I realized that when I was trying to get a job as a player I realized that that was probably not the best route but it all turned out good in the end. Uh, So how did I come here? Well I met my wife in Portugal. I was in Portugal for nine years playing in the opera orchestra and uh, we, uh, I met her. She came out as part of the Tibor Varga school of violin playing that had been established through with money from joining the uh, European community. And uh, she was there full time as an assistant to this great Hungarian violinist Tibor Varga. And I met her there. And then uh, she said we should come to Australia. 
So <laughs> I believed her. Right. <laughs> yeah. H- had you spent any time in Australia prior no, to that? No, I'd never been, never imagined that I would be here. And uh, yeah, and we came to Adelaide looking for work and we were extremely lucky, but we both got jobs within six months in the Adelaide Symphony. I mean, there have been other couples that have come to Adelaide or come back to Adelaide and not both partners would have got jobs, but we did manage to get jobs. And I think that was luck. (laughs) I'm sure there's a bit of uh, talent to go with it as well. So, But, I mean, you have had an amazing performance career. When did you start getting involved in music education? I think I've always loved teaching, and I think I got that from my mother, who was a teacher, um, was she a music teacher? No, she a... was just a normal classroom teacher, junior okay. primary. And, uh, yeah, I've I've always enjoyed teaching and I've always um, enjoyed the music ensemble work that I used to do. Uh, I mean, when I, was, when I was a kid playing in youth orchestras, I used to enjoy doing that. So let's start with talking about the string family and there's, there's um, people who listen to the podcast who will have a lot of knowledge about strings and some who won't have uh, much knowledge about strings. So can you talk us through the, first of all, the different instruments within the string family and um, how they differ? Yeah. Well, a string ensemble is made of five different parts, not four, but five and and that is because you have two separate violin parts or two groups of violins. You have the violas, where I was a viola player. You have the cellos, and then you have the double bass. And I think after about Beethoven's time, the bass part separated from the cello part. It used to be just a bass function, and it has its own individual part. So if you want a good string ensemble in a in a school. Or in a situation like that, you do need double basses and you need them reading a separate part, yeah. Mm, yeah, okay. And what kind of wood do they make all those instruments out of? Uh, maple, mainly, pine. It's, uh, I mean, the different parts of the body, but the, yeah. the main main parts are maple, yeah. Is there much that you need to do to maintain the instruments? I think, I think you know, even beginner string instruments need to be well-maintained and and in good playing order. And that means that the bridge needs to be fitted well. Uh, If you just go... uh, And and, and the bridge is, is that the the bit that the strings go over? Yeah, where the sound sound from the strings vibrates through that that wooden bridge thing onto the body. And that's critical that the feet sit properly on 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 the belly of the violin and the angle of the strings is correct. So that and that the strings are not too high or too low to the fingerboard. And the violin seems to be a very like maybe perhaps the most popular instrument amongst the string family. Perhaps I don't know. I mean, has that been your experience? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think uh, when I first started teaching here, I think it was very hard to find viola players, uh, and now there are instruments are violas with the they've got a wider um belly if you like the the uh depth of the instrument um is wider you can't just you can string up a violin like a viola Hmm. um but it's not as good as as a proper properly uh proportioned instrument yeah so uh yeah it's it was hard and i think also 
the like I've been doing the youth orchestra, the Adelaide Youth Strings since, as you said, uh, since two thousand and one, and finding bass players and finding viola players has always been a problem. Mm-hmm. Now it's improved a lot, and there are a lot more young kids learning viola mm. straight away. The big question. I was a violinist uh, and I swapped over to viola. Uh, my theory is that, you, yes, there are some differences between the violin and viola, but basically the main thing is you have to learn to read the clef. Yeah. Everything else functions basically the same. You, mm-hmm. need to, you need to work in a different way to get the sound out of a bigger instrument, but yeah. you know, it, a lot of it is the same. So is the positioning of the fingers, like where you get the notes, is it the same between a violin and a viola? Yes. Right. It's just it'll be wider. Yeah. The fingers need to stretch further okay. if the instrument's bigger. Yeah. But you can get small violas. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Unfortunately, with the small violas, the C string, the bottom string, if you if you play on it with a, a lot of weight, the sound, uh, the pitch changes. It sounds like someone's snoring. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it, it is relatively doable then for a student who's been learning violin then to change to the viola without too much difficulty, apart from yeah. the reading of the viola. I, clef, I've, as you say. I've made up my own book. And uh, because I think it's like learning a language, you just have to go right in to the viola clef and then you just transfer it all to the viola clef and you start thinking viola clef rather than having the treble clef equivalent written on top. Yeah. Like some commercial books have. And I don't think that works. I think you have to just go dive in. And I've got a student at the moment who uh, I'm just changing He's done AMEB grade six level. He's just passed his exam very well. And uh, I'm starting him on viola. And I think within six months, he'll be up to the the same sort of level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, we're, we're sitting in a room here and we're actually surrounded by percussion instruments, funny enough. And, yes. Uh, it's mean, making me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a bit like, you know, we've got the marimba here and the vibes here. That There are a lot of very transferable skills. I mean, the layout of the notes are the same. And, yeah. Um, but there's a few, few differences, you know, especially with the pedal of the yeah. vibes. But, yeah, similar kind of concept. What about changing, um, you know, say to the cello? From the violin, is that something that's doable, or is it? Yeah, I mean, it's doable, but in only in as far as um, you've got someone who's already learning the skills of of playing a musical instrument and producing sound with a bow. Hmm. Uh, it's doable, but I don't think I think normally I'm not so well up on the beginner. Uh, the the ensemble programs at the very beginning that they have these induction programs they have in a lot of the private schools now mm-hmm. they uh, I'm not so well up on that but I think they they already have chosen violin or cello and I think from there the cellos can go move to double bass if they want violins can move to viola um, yeah I see. maybe they've even they even start with violas as well you know yeah, yeah. okay. All right, so let's start talking a little bit about individual lessons. So, so you do some individual tuition as well, don't yes, you? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so what, is, what do your lessons look like? What's your approach with students? Can you give us a bit of an overview on your approach to teaching? Okay, um, my 
My approach in in a in the situation in school where I normally only get thirty minutes, and I might have some very advanced. I mean, I last this last year I had an associate level viola player. I'm teaching her thirty minutes, and but I always get them to do a left hand finger exercise, and this comes from my uh, my my old teacher. I was, uh, that's. <laughs> sort of teacher i mean i i was uh i worked a little bit for him uh in portugal tibor vaga and he has these finger exercise so i get my students learning that uh i try to do a scale and then i do make my students do studies i'm very strong that they have to work through books of studies and then i will spend the last 10 minutes on their piece so it's i'm divided 10 10 10 really mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you've very little time. You've got to be really fast. Mm. Yeah, it's hard. And with, with the purpose of the studies, is that to develop their technical facility yeah. on the instrument? Yeah, I think the the main uh, the main bow stroke is called the detaché, which doesn't mean detached. It's a broad uh, stroke for producing the sound. Right. And a lot of the early studies are just repetitive. There's no rhythm. There's a repetitive quavers or semi-quavers. And you're teaching the student how to use the bow properly, produce a good sound and things like that. So uh, that's what I use that for. And uh, do you work out of of any particular books or anything like that? Uh, No, I've got my favourite study books. I use the AMEB list rather than the Suzuki books for repertoire choices because it gives me a good idea of the different levels. Uh, So I've always got – and I've got – my favourite pieces at each level. So I know, I think one of the tricks with students is actually finding the right repertoire for them and always having something ready to go next. And so how do you approach the repertoire? I mean, obviously, um, you know, with repertoire, you've got this amazing history of pieces for strings. You know, they've been around hundreds of years. And then you've got more, I guess, um, adaptions of popular kind of music that, you know, might be played on a string instrument. Do you have any sort of preference or how do you go about that? Uh, Yeah, I have my favourite pieces and they're they're pieces that for some reason or other, I mean, we all teachers know that they just work. You just just do them. There's uh, like there's a grade four listed violin piece. uh, It's called Swing and Swang. Uh, in the syllabus and it just works and the kids love it it's you know they have to play a little bit of swing yep uh, and that but and there's a bit of counting and position work and there's some things but yeah it just works and it's yeah it's it does the work for you you know it's great how important is it that the student really likes the pieces that they're playing well i think i always say when parents say to me can you make the lessons fun i say i don't do fun i i love that response can i just say (laughs) i i i think the the enjoyment of playing an instrument comes from the progress that they make and when they start making progress and it becomes quite obvious how how they're making progress then they get they get the most out of it yeah you want you want good pieces you want uh good things for them to do but you you know it's it's making progress is the main thing you know yeah mm. and um out of interest how do parents respond when you give them that answer oh well i mean i'm in a position where if a parent doesn't want 
their child to have lessons with me, then I don't care. And they, <laughs> and it's up to them. Yeah. I mean, I do realize that uh, choosing a teacher is is hard. You know, and there has to be, um, it's a two-way thing. You know, you have to be able to um, appreciate what the student has has to offer and what, and then the student has to appreciate what the teacher has to offer. You know, you can have the best teacher in the world and if you don't, as a student, you you don't understand what they're doing for you, then doesn't make any difference, does it really? And in your lessons, are you playing along with the students? Do you have your instrument out or do you just sort of sit back and listen to them play and tell them to change certain things? I try to do a mixture of that. I do find at high school at a certain level sometimes you do need to play with students more than i think should be necessary but yeah i do it if if it's required yeah Mm. not all the time yeah and what about when it comes to practice do you um set like a certain expectation in in how much you want the student to practice no i i think that it should be obvious. I, I always keep a notebook and I write down uh, what what we're working on. It's more for me to remember what we're doing, and then uh, I just say, "You need, you know, go home, do that, that, and that." And yeah, I I don't go. Oh, you must do this and you must do that. You know, it's yeah, it's got to be yeah. And what about? Um, if you have a situation where you've told a student to go home, okay, learn these exercises, learn those pieces, and they rock up the following week and it's clear that they haven't worked on it at all, how do you um, approach that situation? We end up having a lesson which is like a is like a practice session, and I'm sure a lot of teachers will understand that, where you are actually practicing with the student on the work that they should have done the week before. But, yeah, everyone has it. Everyone goes through that. Uh, The other day I was walking down a hallway in a school and I heard um, a couple of cello students playing together. And, um, you know, I'm a big fan of the cello, but I've got to say what I heard was was a little bit hard to listen to. And it was because they were really quite out of tune uh, with each other. And it got me thinking that, you know, as a percussionist, um, we don't have to think too much about tuning because you – instruments with the exception of the timpani are all pre-tuned when they're made in the factories so as long as you hit the instrument okay you know it's it sounds all right it sounds in tune but that's obviously not the case for string players no so um how do you go about helping a student develop their intonation yes i think i heard it said once that the best way to play in tune is never to play out of tune and Obviously, it's just like a habit, like brushing your teeth or something. If you, if you always, you can, you can always, you can only play as well as you can hear. If you can't hear the difference that that second finger F sharp is slightly flat, if you can't hear that, then you, it's not going to improve that. So you try by just by repetition to, to improve the ear. Uh, but a lot of students have, very, most people have very good ears and they can distinguish those kind of things. I've I've found, interestingly, that some advanced piano students that come to me to learn violin or viola, um, they, because the piano, like you say with the percussion, is, a you know, you press or you hit a key and it gives you the note, whereas uh, with the violin you have to adjust. 
then then they're not used to that kind of concept and it takes a bit of time to get through there that can make it a little bit more tricky now i mentioned at the start that um you're you're the head of strings here at concordia college and um uh the string department here has had like an amazing run of of successes over the the last 10 years or something like that um just tell us a little bit about what they've achieved uh well i suppose from uh i mean what they've achieved is is uh is is the level that they play at within uh, for schools concerts and things like that uh they have we this fantastic um aboda band and uh orchestra competition that now a lot of the schools are participate in we have won that uh category i think eight out of the last 10 times or since we've been basically won it every time we've done it mm. i think we didn't we came second one year yeah <laughs> who beat you that year uh i think it was um Marrickville. uh and actually i thought uh we played better than the following year when we won it but never mind that's the, ju- that's the, judges, the nature of competitions yeah the judges must have had it wrong uh, <laughs> no but i mean i think you know like I, I mean i've heard on your podcast other other people say it's it's a, a competition is a competition it's um you know it, it's it's great to motivate the kids towards uh they get very excited about it it's a great opportunity for them to hear some of the other groups um i mean it is is a lovely thing but it's not the be all and end all i mean really what it is is that the standard we get to when we play concerts in in the school or outside of the school you know that's for me that's the main thing yeah that's the reward Yeah, yeah yeah Hi everyone, that includes part one of my interview with Martin Butler. In part two, we delve much more into how Martin runs and approaches the various ensembles that he directs. Just a reminder that Musico has launched a new instrument hire program. This is ideal for school band programs and students undertaking instrumental lessons. We have a great range of brass, woodwind and percussion instruments. Please head over to musico.com to find out more details. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you shortly for part two.